The waiting room is darker than usual today. I noticed that one of the overhead lights has gone out, and I'm grateful. It's usually so bright that I can barely think straight. I walk over to my usual chair. It's in the corner behind a couple of coffee tables. I choose it because it's inaccessible for patients with walkers and wheelchairs. And from what I've noticed, I'm one of the only ones who comes without these. I'm one of the lucky ones. That's what my physical therapist, speech therapist, occupational therapist, psychologist, and neurologist tell me. Yeah, I have a lot of doctors. And I get what they're saying. There's Frank, a vice principal, sitting in another corner with his eyes closed. He has constant migraines and vertigo and hasn't been able to return to work in six months. And then there's the no-namers. Not because they don't have names, but mainly because they can't speak, so I don't know their names. There's hockey guy in his wheelchair. The left side of his face looks a little funny, like the skin is loose and droopy. He only moans from time to time, and his mom has a white towel ready to wipe drool from his face. I call him hockey guy because he's always wearing a hockey jersey. I imagine he's here because he got his brain injury playing hockey, but you can't know for sure. Laura? My occupational therapist waits for me at the door. I feel bad because I always forget her name, and twice I've fallen asleep while we're doing our exercises. I can tell she thinks I'm a little rude, but I don't mean to be. I'm just so tired all the time, and I don't see the point to what we're doing. I come to this outpatient clinic three times a week for hours, and I'm shuttled from doctor to doctor. No one tells me when it's going to end. My team of doctors keeps saying it's the best thing for me right now. They're really nice, and I'm sure they know what they're doing but I don't remember anything, so I have to trust them when they say I'm improving. The psychologist tells me I'm depressed. I want to explain to her that I'm just really tired, and I have my college classes to study for, my part-time job, and all this outpatient therapy takes up most of my time. But instead, I stare at her bright purple eyeshadow and think about how my friend Erica would say how out of fashion it is and wait until they tell me I'm done for the day. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, where we delve into the world of mental disorder. To overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Welcome back to Redeeming Disorder. My name is Laura Bochanski, and I'm here with my co-host, Spencer Bledsoe. Spence, how's it going? Hey, good. Welcome <laughs> to episode two. How are you, Laura? Good. I can't believe this is episode two of season two. It's exciting stuff. Um, last week, if you guys listened, we talked about mindfulness and different therapies with Tyler Simmons. And this week is going to be really interesting as well. We're going to have a guest on who talks about her experience with OCD. Um, and Spencer, you know her better than I do, so why don't you tell everyone about her? Sure. Yeah. So her name is Katie Klingman, and I've known her for a while. I know her from college where we had a few conversations like this, and she was really open about talking about mental health, which we will get into when talking to her but she has struggled with anxiety as well as some obsessive compulsive tendencies and that's had a huge effect on how she handles school and navigating mental health care not only with healthcare in general but also within a university 
And uh, finally, she says a lot that I think um, you'll find relatable as far as self-validation and maybe questioning yourself where she constantly grappled with figuring out if she should be getting help, how much help she should be getting, and if the way she was feeling was due to a disorder and making sense of it all. So I think she has a really smart perspective on all that and I'm excited to get into it with her. Yeah, me too. Let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, so today on the podcast, we've got a longtime friend of mine. Her name is Katie Klingman. Uh, welcome, Katie. Hi. Hi, Katie. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's You have stuff to talk about, I think, that we haven't necessarily had before, um, especially in terms of sort of the practicality of being someone in search of care. And I know just because you were always so open in college, um, if you want to just start with that, which was what I saw of you and knew of you, you know, early on as we, after we met. Yeah. Um, What was Um, your situation like in college? So I've always had OCD since I was a kid. Um, I was on meds for it when I was like five before I started kindergarten. And then that was about it. And then I got to go off the meds. Um, And then when I was in high school, uh, late high school, I started getting a lot of depressive symptoms and that just kind of got worse as uh college went on so I started being on meds and I did therapy for the first time after um I don't remember if it was the summer before college or it was the summer after freshman year but um and it was all not great but manageable and then my junior year I essentially went from getting straight A's to withdraws and completes F's, D's in all of my classes. I mean, my transcript looks ridiculous. And it, I was actually, I had been contacted by the university. Um, I went to the University of Chicago, Spencer and I both did. Mm-hmm. And I was contacted by the university saying, oh, you're up for, like, you could, you're one of our candidates for a Fulbright scholarship. And so, like, it was, like, full on peak, like, I was doing theater, I was doing awesome in classes, I was doing awesome, you know, not necessarily emotionally, but in terms of my resume, it looked like I was doing great. Yeah, on Mm -hmm. paper. And then it kind of all came crashing down, and it all started with one essay in one class, and it just spiraled from there, and it took me a really long time to figure out what was going on, because it essentially just came across as procrastination, and I thought I was just being lazy and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, even though normally I don't You thought that, so not even other people thinking that. You no, it was me, 100% me. Mm-hmm. Um, and <coughs> because I essentially would get assignments and I would put off doing the work, put off doing the work, put off doing the work, and I wouldn't even be like doing fun things. I would be like picking my nails or like picking out my eyebrows, picking out my skin, organizing pencils, stuff like that. Like it was stuff that mm-hmm. I didn't even enjoy doing. But it was just a way of not doing the work. And, of course, that comes across as procrastination, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we've all heard of that. And it comes across as just being lazy and not wanting to do the work. And my mom was the first one to suggest that it might actually be, after I described it to her, my OCD, coming back kind of to the point where I might need to be medicated for it. And so I started going to a psychologist in Chicago um, and it 
turns out, yes, that seemed to be the case. Mm-hmm. And I had tried contacting, um, I contacted a couple different uh, therapists in the area. U Chicago, sorry, don't U Chicago, Chicago actually has really great resources um, for anxiety and stuff. They've got like a whole website that has like therapists listed, which is awesome. Oh, Chicago um, specific therapists? Yeah. Um, Now, a lot of them are in the suburbs, but Mm -hmm. it is possible to find ones downtown. That that wasn't too hard. Um, Yeah. And I tried to find ones in Hyde Park, but as I'm sure Spencer knows, Hyde Park is a little bit of a... Uh, its own unique situation where it's uh, even with Hyde Park. So there wasn't a ton of stuff. Um, And I I tried to go through the school, uh, call through the school hospital, but they couldn't see me for like three months, which if you're in the quarter system, yeah, if you're in the quarter system, that's not going to work. So I eventually ended up with this one uh, Which is absurd. And I think, like, I just want to point out, probably isn't that uncommon of a story, these insane wait times. No. Um, No. what was there a reason there just wasn't enough staff or not it's they're just too booked wow. plain and simple they don't have enough people um and before i even went to seek an outside therapist i tried going to the student counseling center mm-hmm. and it became abundantly clear to me very quickly that the student counseling center they were trying their best they really were they were not set up for actual mental disorders mm-hmm. they were set up for kids who had a tough adjustment period to school or who broke up with a boyfriend and was really sad or who were going through the death of a parent. Like stuff that's not by any means like anything to laugh at. It's it's absolutely all stuff that is serious and that people need counseling for, but it was nothing chronic essentially. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's sort of focused on stuff that is external or circumstantial rather than something, you know, yeah, under, to under some extent, surface. to some extent. And I mean, they, they themselves admitted they, the, if you weren't to the counseling service, you could go for up to 10 weeks with a counselor, but you could not do more than that because that was not what they were set up for. They were not long-term counseling and they themselves told you that off the bat. Well, that's um, bad, at least. Yeah, no, I mean, it was good. And I, I have nothing against them, but it, it, I'll get into this later, but it is a little silly that our university that has a like bajillion dollar endowment wouldn't be able to maybe pay for slightly more services, but mm-hmm. I'll get into that later. But that's what, that's what made me seek outside help because it became very clear that I wouldn't be able to get help yeah. for a real mental disorder. Well, from for now, I guess uh, it, that might be a good time to ask something I was wondering, which is it does yeah. seem like in the cases of real mental disorders, it seems like college is a time that often, um, can exacerbate symptoms or maybe mm-hmm. can uh, re-provoke things that have already existed. I have a couple friends, no one who's been on the podcast, at least not yet, but mm-hmm. uh, one in friend in particular had a very hard freshman year. And it does yeah. seem like during this time, these things often come to like a full speed. Um, is that something you've noticed? And do you think, uh, how, do you, how do you separate the just college-centric struggle from mm-hmm. disorder well being at U chicago um i mean it it really i'm not even saying this to be obnoxious it really is one of the hardest schools period and i know spencer knows that but like you know everyone says like oh my school was hard i'm 100 percent serious i've talked to people at harvard mit etc it really is ridiculously difficult and so 
I was not the only one stressing out by any means of the imagination. My roommates were all stressing out. People were definitely like having really bad nights or having bad like weeks. You know, I mean, there was times when I would find my roommates, you know, crying at 2 a.m. Like Mm -hmm. this was by no means me alone who was having trouble. Yeah. So glad I didn't go there. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. It was also fun. Don't get me wrong. I'm just talking about like the Well, I think a part of it is it's as hard as you make it. If you really challenge yourself, yeah, it's going to be really hard. You can make it unbelievably hard. You can also kind of like look for shortcuts, but. um, Yeah, that's true. But like, I I don't know. The friends I tend to be drawn to are people who are very like going to try my hardest kind of situation, Mm -hmm. which at UChicago, if you try your hardest constantly, you're going to burn out. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so I guess the clear difference was that they were up and down periods and it'd be like a bad day or a bad couple days. For me, it was just a constant. It was all quarter, every quarter is how it kind of became where I was depressed. I was anxious. I didn't want to get out of bed. I wouldn't do any work to the point where it was really affecting my day-to-day living. Um, And that's how I would say that sort of differed. So you would say the environment really triggered your OCD? Yeah, I... I would definitely say the environment did. In some ways, I think no matter where I had gone, it might mm-hmm. not have happened at college, but it might have happened then when I graduated and started working. Because mm-hmm. the way I was functioning in high school, while it was actually while it was doable, was not healthy by any means. I was go 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 constantly, and yeah. I felt I felt guilty <clears throat> anytime I wasn't being productive. So I like couldn't have fun unless all of my homework was done and all of my extracurriculars were done. And only then could I, like, kick back for a minute and watch a TV show. Um, yeah. Uh, because you, could, yeah. you couldn't do it. The guilt would sort of, like, override you trying to do something like that otherwise. Yeah. Sorry, one second. There's, like, a spider. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All I right. can relate, actually. I've got uh, spiders all over my apartment. It's kind of creepy. Make um, Marcella protect you. Yeah, I will. She's, She's very good. strong. She's a good defender. Um, um, I, okay, well, anyway, I do relate to you on a serious level, too, though, because I think... I mean, I, I don't have OCD, but I, I can relate to the notion of being motivated sort of by fear in high yeah, school absolutely. and feeling like you need to do something to assuage your guilt or to live with yourself almost. And I think that is a more common story than people would think that a lot of yeah. people, especially type A people, might motivate themselves that way for a long time. And I think what I found and maybe what you found too is it will, you can get by that way for a while, but it's not sustainable. And eventually, no, you'll reach a point where something it's, it, has basically to what happened to me was in high school, you know, I mean, I'd be up till 2 a.m. doing homework, but I could manage that. I could finish the homework and I could then go to school. University of Chicago, they purposely give you so much work, they do not expect you to do it all. Like, they literally mm-hmm. don't. Like, they, they, it, they give you all this work and then they'll, like, actually, t- the teachers will tell you, like, oh, well, focus more on this reading because they know you're not going to do it all. Yeah. Well, I'm me. And one of my things (laughs) with OCD is completionism. And Mm -hmm. I would try to do it all. And it was actually physically impossible. Even when it's not practical, even when you're not going to be writing your paper on a particular piece. Right. It didn't matter. It didn't matter because it was something we were assigned. And so I felt like I had to do it. And yeah. Sorry. What did it feel like? So you get the assignment and then you're sitting down to do your homework. What... Can you just, I want to um, understand what it felt like in your brain, what thoughts you mm-hmm. had in your body, like what was going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, every type of OCD is different. Um, the kind most people know of is from the TV show Monk, where it's like, oh, I'm a germaphobe. Oh, I need to wash my hands a lot. I need to organize things a lot. And it's not like that's not true. Those, those 
those compulsions absolutely exist. Yeah. But typically it's a little more complicated than that. It's not mm-hmm. just, oh, everything needs to be clean and I'll be fine. Like, yeah. that's a simplification of it. So my right. OCD comes across more like I'm just being a complete lazy jerk. Like, it really does as, well as it comes across because I'll be on stupid internet games that aren't even fun for, like, eight hours when I should be doing an assignment. But it's, like, a compulsion because, like, I I, I feel like I got to – I got to – I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this before I can do my work. Mm. The other thing with me is that I'm a complete completionist. So like a good example of how this works is like when I'm reading a book, I cannot speed read. I have to read every single word in the sentence and I have to finish the sentence. And if I don't, I have to go back and do it. So I've read books before where, you know, something fast paced, like the hunger games or whatever, where like, you know, like, you're like, ooh, I want to know what the big reveal is. And, like, my eyes will naturally skip down to lower in the page and I'll read. I have to go back and I have to read every single sentence. And if I don't, I just feel awful. There's this anxiety that I miss something super important. And to some extent, the anxiety isn't even attached to any logical thought. It's just there. So with mm-hmm. homework and stuff, same thing. I, I mean, I was an English major. We read a lot. And I so yeah. I felt like I had to read every single word. And I couldn't skim, even if it was, you know, a 400-page book or whatever. Right. And we had three days to read it. And then the other thing was that with essays, I would over I would over plan and overtake notes. For one essay, I had 70 pages of notes for what should have been a 15-page essay. Oh, wow. Because I was convinced that I had to go through all of it and if I didn't go through every single part and get every single note that I could possibly use I felt like I was missing something very you could miss some important point that would make the paper right and logically I knew that was completely crazy but it it's hard to explain for some people with OCD it's like they think there's a particular thing that's going to happen so literally the whole step on a crack break your mother's back thing that's kind of the idea of it is you do this little thing and you are convinced something bad's going to happen. Hmm. You know logically it's not going to happen, but it doesn't change how you feel. And for me, it's not usually a specific event. It's more just this overwhelming feeling of dread. And, like, I – it's hard to explain, but, like, my entire body feels like something's wrong. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously sounds overwhelming. I'm curious. Yeah. Have you found, have you found, <laughs> have you read the book Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder? Um, I've read parts of it. Because I know for... I just thought of that when you mentioned the reading thing. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, not to compare myself to your condition, but I do relate to the reading thing in that I have to reread things if I miss something. And I have a very hard yeah. time speed reading, etc. Um, very completionist yeah, so the in thing that is... sense. Everyone has compulsions and obsessions. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not unique to OCD. Yeah. And you can absolutely have compulsions and obsessions that are real compulsions, real obsessions. The thing with OCD is it's basically a, enough of them combined to the point where it really significantly affects your day-to-day living. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's kind of what then makes it a disorder. Like anything in the DSM, they give it a definition, but... It's obviously pretty up in the air when it comes to real situations. It's very yeah. individual. Well, yeah, um, it's actually, that's another thing I did want to ask about in addition to the reading. The only, the only thing I was going to mention with that book is that it has an exercise with the reading where you will like gradually cross out a word here or there, like black it yeah. out and still read. Yeah. 
and then do more and more just to sort of make your peace or try to with missing some things. But so that's right. It sounds like um, exposure and response. Prevention. Exposure response therapy, yeah. Yeah, exposure response which is interesting. Which yeah. I have done quite a bit of. Okay. Um, so essentially, to get back to my college story, I went to a therapist for a while, and he was very helpful. But it became pretty clear pretty quickly that I needed a really serious help. Like it, I was not in a good place, and I wasn't going to graduate. And so, so just sorry, I, just to tie the yeah, one loose end to um to complete the one loose end that about um sorry. having the disorder or not. No, because it does relate to what you said with when you realized it was a real problem. Um, what uh, sort of made it go over the line? Did you ever debate like, okay, is it actually a disorder for sure? Because you said it, it's the difference maker is sort of when it's hindering your day-to-day life, which it clearly was. When did that realization come about? It is still something I struggle with to convince myself I actually have a medical problem and not just I'm a procrastinator. Or, of course, essays make me anxious. Get over it, Katie. You know, I struggle with that every day. And what helped a lot was having a therapist tell me, yes, you have this condition. Having my mom, who's a, who's a medical doctor, tell me, yes, you have this. Having my therapist from back home tell me, yes, you have this. And then what I tried to do was get, uh, which was my therapist's suggestion, and I didn't even know it was a thing, was psychological disability accommodations. I didn't know that existed. I, I thought disabilities are being in a wheelchair or not having a leg or whatever. I yeah. just, I had no idea that there was such a thing as a psychological disability to the point where you would get accommodations. Right. And so they, basically my therapist set me up with um, uh, a woman who, this is literally what she does professionally. Um, her name is Gina Bartucci. Um, and literally what she does is she will test people out and find out if they are, uh, worthy is not the word I'm thinking for. If they qualify (laughs) for a psychological disability accommodation. So I tested with her and she said, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, she does this for colleges in the area, high schools in the area. It's not like this is a first time thing. Yeah. So it was by having five different doctors tell me, yes, this is a real thing, you're not making this up, that I finally had to start being like, maybe it is a real thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think that's important, and that's sort of why I wanted to just interject with that. I think a lot of people share that struggle of yours, that it's under the surface, and so they don't get that automatic validation. You know, When you assume disability is just a physical thing or being in a wheelchair, it's obvious for those people, but it's... I do think a lot of people in your position probably have a lot of self-questioning going on, just like you did. Yeah, and what did not help was um, I got this report done, and I even I have it. I pulled it out of my files in case you guys want to hear any part of it. But basically, it's a report describing what my problems are and asking for specific accommodations that would be you know reasonable and not give me an edge over other students, but would just put me on equal ground with them. Yeah. And we submitted this to the school and the school uh, determined, and I pulled up this email because um, I still have it. I, I keep things for records because you never know when you're going to need them slash also I'm OCD. Uh, I can actually say that. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, um, 
this the school said um, the additional request you have made no grade penalty for absences uh, which was not exactly what I asked for. I asked for, I would be able to make up for absences by meeting with the teacher privately and going over the book we had talked about or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is college. It, it, it's not high school, you know? It's people miss classes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, then, and, flexi- and then and flexible assignment due dates, which basically I was asking to be able to work with the teacher on assignment due dates because of my uh, procrastination and my intense anxiety and so to be able to work with the teacher on when would it act when would I be turned it when would I turn the essay in as opposed to other people yeah and not be too dinged grade wise for turning it in late yeah and that says so these additional requests would be considered as modifications of curriculum and not as reasonable accommodations for the stage di- stated diagnosis Determining assignment due dates is not the prerogative of students with disability services. Such conversations must include each individual instructor for each class, as instructors understand the pedagogy upon which course requirements are designed. Um, And it is the expectation of the university that all the students in the college be able to regularly attend course lectures and instruction, as this is a fundamental component of the the institution's teaching and learning environment. Um, And basically... I mean, what I interpret that, that as, which admittedly my brain also has issues, is that I was making it up. Mm-hmm. That's what my brain took away from it. Whether or not that's what they intended, that's what but I that's took what away it from like. it. Yeah. Right. It was basically I was being told I was asking for special privileges that were not reasonable accommodations and were, would be special modifications for me and that I did not qualify for them. And mm-hmm. so that did not help the situation <laughs> no. because after I'd been told by all these doctors and this person who, you know, tests people for a living yeah, um, that yes, I have OCD. Yes. You qualify for psychological disability to then be told by the school. No, you do not. Um, was pretty crushing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably fueled the fire my- of all the self doubt we just talked about. And my mom even was like, well, we can take this to the ACLU. We can do stuff with this because we could have. We could have pushed it. But it was my last – it was senior year of college, and I just wanted to be done, Mm -hmm. and I did not want to mess with it. So instead what we did was I did an intensive outpatient program, which is essentially um, you're not institutionalized, but you're going to therapy. I went to therapy four times a week for three hours a day. Um, and that's how often you're going. And, um, it's for, for me, it was for the whole quarter. So it was about three months ish. Um, it could be for longer. And the only difference between that and institution, like it being institutionalized is you go home at the end of the day. Basically, you Mm -hmm. don't wake up there, go to sleep there. Yeah. But you're having about the same amount of therapy though. Right, but you're going to a ton of therapy, and that's why it's called um, an intensive outpatient program. So I did that my final quarter, and that helped a lot. I did it with mm-hmm. – um, uh, oh, my God, why am I blanking on the name of the place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was a, it's a place that's downtown, and they're, they're not – it's not easy to find programs, particularly in Chicago. It's very easy mm-hmm. to find ones in nice suburbs – but it's not easy to find ones that are like downtown or close enough to Hyde Park that I could get to them. Yeah, certainly but not I managed, Hyde Park either. 
yeah. Uh, but I managed to find one. And so I went to that and that helped a lot. And I managed to, after some effort, get insurance to pay for it, um, which was another huge thing because otherwise I couldn't have done it. I mean, you know, these programs cost yeah. $20,000 or more because it's so much time. Um, and then through that, I was able to barely graduate, like came down to that one final paper, but I did do it. And I had to, I was able to walk with my class, even though I technically didn't graduate till like the summer. But after, thanks to my academic advisor, who also was my other complete hero in this, and I would never have gone through all this without her. uh, She basically like was my cheerleader and was like, no, you're going to let Katie grab, you're going to let Katie walk with her friends. Like, (laughs) so I was able to graduate. It sounds like you had a lot of individuals, if not, you know, the institution helping you. It sounded like you had some individuals to turn to in the situation that were helpful. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that at University of Chicago, like there was so many individual teachers and individual, like my academic advisor, who was administrator, um, my, the, that my house heads, there's a lot of people who were in administrative positions who were incredibly helpful. The head of the English department, her daughter actually, as it turns out, also had OCD and had also been to an intensive outpatient program. So she completely understood. Yeah. Um, and that made a huge difference. That's the only reason I was able to graduate. Hmm. But at the same time, there was a lot of administrators who did not understand, did not care. I had teachers who did not care, who when I gave them a long email explaining, you know, I had a depressive episode and this is why I missed class, basically said, you should have come to class. Um, and administrators, and I mean, obviously the disability department ultimately denied accommodations to me. So yeah. it's, I, I, I'm not going to say it's all good or all bad at Chicago because that'd be dumb to say either way. It's, it's just, it definitely, I f- was very lucky to find some people, but overall the, ins- the institution did deny me services. Right. And there's a huge variation just amongst people anywhere with um, Mm -hmm. kind of understanding this stuff. I mean, we've talked about uh, it. I think it varies with everything, with where you live, with um, where you live both city-wise and in the world, um, and sort of someone's background, upbringing, whether or not they will, you know, view this type of thing through the lens that uh, you view it or really validate you. Yeah. I actually really relate to your story because I didn't have OCD, but I had a brain injury and where I mm-hmm. had to go to intensive outpatient and it really, oh, yeah, <laughs> and it really affected my school and just how people yeah. saw me. And I think what people don't understand is um, I think sometimes they assume playing the victim card and they're like, oh, well, I can't do this because of this. Yeah. Where when you're the person who has a mental disorder or the brain injury, you're thinking, I'm so ashamed that I have to come forward with this. And I wish yep. that there was more um, just understanding there of, of where that's coming from. Yeah, there's I mean, and I think the other thing that people should keep in mind is that for however many times you think, oh, maybe that person's just making it up. Oh, maybe they're exaggerating. Yes. The person oh, themselves totally. thinks that about 50 times more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, that's one of the huge things about mental disorders mm-hmm. and not just OCD or depression. I mean, I've talked to other people is that you spend so much of your time thinking, I'm making this up. I'm being overdramatic. Mm-hmm. I'm being a special <laughs> snowflake. Like, what's wrong with me, basically? <laughs> mm-hmm. And invalidating yourself. Right. 
Yeah, it's I I can totally hear you that it's um, people. It's it's easy to be your own biggest critic and to yeah, as you said, invalidate yourself. Um, and I I think it becomes like a big challenging paradox sometimes with self care in that. On one hand, it's important, I think, to validate yourself and understand there shouldn't be any shame around what you're experiencing and the symptoms mm-hmm. and condition that you have. Um, that it's very real. Um, but then at the same time, you know, like sometimes it's there's you don't necessarily find a cure or there's nothing that can be done in a real world situation. And so I imagine like it's very hard to both validate yourself and to know that sometimes it's on you to overcome a situation Mm -hmm. that you encounter well and that's the thing is most uh treatment for oc for i mean for ocd the most effective forms of treatment in general tend to be behavioral based therapy Mm -hmm. so cognitive behavioral kind of stuff yeah yeah so the idea which uh um exposure response prevention is a form of and so the idea is it does ultimately come down to you. You have to change the behavior. Now you have help doing that. And meds for me helped significantly in getting me in a place where I was even able to go through therapy. Nice. But it does ultimately come down to you changing the behavior and you, it, so it can feel like if it's not going well, oh, I'm just not trying hard enough is how it can feel. Yeah. And I mean, maybe you feel sort of like I do with meds that they can be very helpful in getting you in that spot, but they don't necessarily resolve a root problem. And they don't, they don't. I I mean, and I'm, yeah, once you're in that, I'm on. Yeah. And I mean, I'm on quite a high dose of Prozac right now. It helps with both my depression and my OCD. And I don't mind saying that. Yeah. And it's, I would never tell, like, I don't like negative views on meds just outright Mm -hmm. i don't want anyone to ever be like oh you're on meds oh that's bad because that's i don't think that's true they put me in a place where i'm able to then make a lot more progress with my therapist and Mm -hmm. get a better handle on things because this does you know psychological disabilities run in my family i don't think it's entirely just because of chicago i think it's um also by biological i think i'm probably gonna because i mean like i said i had it when i was five Mm -hmm. like i'm probably gonna have this for life and that's okay because the meds help me with that and so i'm so grateful that one i don't have any bad side effects and two i grew up in an environment with doctor parents Mm -hmm. where they do not mind me taking meds they in fact and just for everyone your parents are both psychologists is that right no, my mom's a behavioral and developmental pediatrician. Oh, okay. This means she deals with kids who have behavioral and developmental problems. So ADD, autism, OCD, learning disorders, that kind of oh. stuff. My dad's a neurologist. Okay. So he's essentially okay. a brain doctor, but does not do surgery. <laughs> Though he does sometimes stick needles in people's brains. And I'll be on the phone with him like, hey, can you get some OJ? <laughs> and he'll be like, yeah, yeah, hold on. I just got to put a needle in someone's brain. <sighs> wow. Yeah, I I actually really like um, you sharing your perspective on medication because I've heard that from a lot of people. Like that gets me to a place where I am okay and I can deal with the root problem with a therapist. Yeah, but it's like you can't deal with the root problem until you are okay, and that medication yeah. helps. Yeah, it, I mean, it helps me get in a place where I can literally get out of bed and get to the therapist. Yeah, which was right. a huge problem for me was just getting to therapy. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to staying at home and avoiding it just like I avoided everything else. <laughs> yeah, I think with a, like a lot of issues like this with medication, um, there are people just sort of often take on extreme views, you know, kind of yeah. like you mentioned, you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, medication is terrible. Um, but uh, really, like often the truth seems to lie somewhere in the middle. Yes. And to, you know, there's the side of it that, um, yeah, medication clearly helps people. And then there's the side of it that there's a lot we don't know. And I'm sure your dad could probably have an interesting perspective on this as a neurologist that uh, with respect to how medication works and uh, how depression really forms in the brain, you know, whether it's or how OCD forms in the brain, um, whether it's biological, you know, what the balance is between nature and nurture, there's still so much to learn. Yeah, I mean, the re- my dad's a complete nerd, and he just constantly loves to learn. And the reason he chose neurology is because there's so little we know about the brain. Like, even in 2017, there is so much we don't know. Yeah, And that's a huge part of it, is nature versus nurture. I mean, it's, you know, he sees people with even migraines, which is not something you would necessarily think of as, like, a mental disorder, which it's not really. But at the same time, that's one of those chronic conditions that often don't respond to Western medication, but it can respond amazingly to acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Really? And there is, yes, oh, there is scientific basis of this. There are studies that show that this is not just a placebo effect. It actually, wow. for some people, acupuncture helps with people with migraines incredibly, but the general assumption when you don't know anything is, oh, well, that's the weird Eastern voodoo medicine or <laughs> yeah. whatever, you yeah. know, like that doesn't actually do anything. But what we're learning more and more in medicine is that if you have a condition like like you broke a bone or you have like a tumor, like Western medicine's great. They can take that out. They can deal with that. Yeah. Western medicine's not great at chronic conditions. Will you send and, me that study? I would love to read that. And yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to include it in our show notes because that's really mm-hmm. interesting to me. Like, yeah, absolutely. I and think, I, I just know this stuff because of my dad. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, I mean, it's cool because I think like you're right in our culture. We're so skeptical of something like that. I'm skeptical of something like that just because I think both I and sort of America at this stage is really, or a lot of America values science um, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of hard facts and yeah, Western medicine. And we, I think, it's tough because, like, again, there's an ex- there are, like, extremes and you have to sort of search for the gray areas here where I think you have um, the fact that something like that could be helpful is coupled with, you know, a lot of probably people who uh, don't believe in Western medicine at all and are against medication mm-hmm. completely and who think maybe acupuncture or yoga. And I, I deal with this a lot, you know, in meditation, which I'm really passionate about. They think there's some, like almighty cure-all um magical uh elixir out there Um, and i think that gets coupled in our very like western minds together with things that might actually be helpful and so i think it's really valuable to be able to see that nuance yeah i I think it's all in any medical thing it's all about treatments and moderation and trying stuff Mm -hmm. and if you try something if you try the western like treatment and it doesn't work for you that happens. There's a lot of chronic conditions that happens for. And in that case, why not try something else? I mean, mm-hmm. what's the worst case scenario, you know? But I don't think you should have I, – I, I, partly, again, because I'm from a family of medical people. My sister's also in medical school. I don't think that you should ever just say, no, I'm going to try the less proven method because I think 
I, I just I just don't believe in chemo or whatever. Right. It's a matter of being practical. <laughs> well, before we um, move on, I wanted to make sure we talked a lot about exposure and response prevention. Do, do yeah. you think you could explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea is that, um, and this is not just for OCD, it's for multiple types of anxiety disorders, something will make you anxious. And it can be anything. So for one girl in my exposure response group, it was walking down the street. She was constantly worried about getting dirty, about getting dirt from the air. And it it just was something that really freaked her out. For me, reading a book and not reading every word makes me incredibly anxious. Um, So what you do is you come up with, they call it SUDS, which is the, I don't actually remember at the top of my head what it stands for, but it's essentially your scale of this thing makes me, on a scale of 1 to 10, this thing gives me a 1 in anxiety, this thing gives me a 2, this thing gives me a 10. And 10 is like the most anxious you could ever imagine being. Like you may not even, you probably haven't even been that anxious, but like that would be complete shutting down kind of situation. So it's not even necessarily like realistic that a situation would happen. But like, so for me, my 10 was getting expelled from the school and ending up homeless on the streets. Like Mm -hmm. completely absurd, Mm -hmm. But that was honestly something I really worried about. And so then what you do is you start on the low numbers and you start exposing yourself to things. So I I was forced to read, you know, a book without reading every word. Or I was forced to read a book without taking notes. That was another big thing for me because, you know, Um, in school you take notes based on what you're reading. And I, they would take away my pen, they would take away everything, and then you have to do it while you're, you know, you don't have to be supervised, but it can help. Um, and you expose yourself to this thing for five minutes. It's not Even a long... that sounds like a big leap after, from 75 pages of notes to no notes. No, I know. I mean, and that was, that was, that was a more, something I did it once I had done it for a while. I mean, it starts yeah. really low. It starts with, like, read a... Read a sentence, like read a book, and you just leave off one word in each sentence or something. It, it, it depends mm. on the person, mm-hmm. it, but it starts very low. So you only have like a one or two in anxiety. And then you keep doing that until that doesn't make you as anxious. And then you start stepping it up and you keep doing your four and five until that doesn't make you as anxious. So it's just constant repeat, like repeated exposure to the thing mm-hmm. that makes you anxious to convince your brain, oh, the world didn't end, mm-hmm. basically, because what happens is your brain, essentially the um, the more animal part of your brain, which is fight or flight or freeze mm-hmm. response, is taking over. And it's good that we have that response because back in the day, um, it would be good to like fight a saber-toothed tiger instead of just dying. But mm-hmm. the problem is nowadays we're not we're often faced with situations like writing a hard essay where those responses are not realistic. Like, right. There's but, no real death on the table, even right. though we think there is. But your brain, the, particularly for people with anxiety disorders, your brain is convinced it's the same thing. So their brain fills you with um, a lot of chemicals, makes you freak out, even though the consequences aren't that bad. And so by exposing yourself, it's constantly exposing yourself to the thing. So your brain eventually learns to rewire itself and rewire its neural pathways and go, oh, so if I don't read a couple books, 
I don't actually die. <laughs> um, and that makes sense that the more primitive part of your brain, even if you know that cerebrally, it's not going to get it until you really go through that and see cause and effect. Exactly. That's a huge part of it is you will know logically. I mean, and that's why I don't, I don't personally mind the word crazy, at least for people describing themselves. Um, because uh-huh. I absolutely, when I'm really like spiraling and when I'm really down that rabbit hole, I'm a crazy person. Like, I'll be like convinced that like, like literally I'd had a freak out right before this interview because of budget stuff, which it's not that bad. I'm perfectly fine money wise. I'm perfectly fine. But I was like on the couch, like crying, being like, like to my boyfriend of five years who loves me very much being like, do you hate me? Do you think I'm stupid? And he was like, no. But like, and of course, I can talk about that now. And it's like, wow, that's hilarious. Like, what is wrong with me? But at the time, it seemed very reasonable to me. (laughs) Yeah, when you're in the midst, yeah. No, I totally get that. Yeah, that's, I, I think like that's probably something that someone struggling with this stuff can relate to. And, you know, on a lesser scale, I think everyone can relate to yeah. being caught in some kind of moment and not having that perspective, like not being able to zoom out or be mindful or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I always, I call it, for me, I call it spiraling where I go from one thought to the next, to the next, to the next. And I think uh, more scientifically, it's called catastrophizing, where essentially yes. you'll, you'll yeah. start with, uh, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to show up to work on time. We'll be five minutes late. And that'll go to, well, then my boss will be angry at me. And then I'm not going to do well in this assignment. And then I'm going to get fired. And then I'm not going to have enough money to pay for an apartment. And then I'm going to go homeless. And my boyfriend will break up with me. And my parents will disown me. And I'll die in the streets of drug overdose. I mean, it literally I'm goes like that. Stressed. And it's, it sounds so ridiculous when you're not in the mode, you're like, mm-hmm. this is stupid. Like, I come from a very well-off family. Even if I lost my job, I'm not going to end up on the streets. Like, my parents will take me in. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. just completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. But when you're in that mode, your brain, your, your animal brain takes over. And your cerebral brain does not care. <laughs> yeah. And so that was really frustrating because I'm also a pretty logical person like you, Spencer. I mean, I think a lot of people that go to mm-hmm. University of Chicago are. And so I'd be in situations where I'd be like, you know, not putting off homework. And I knew, like, part of my brain is telling me, what are you doing? Just do the homework. Yeah. Then it'll be over with. Yeah. And the other part of my brain is telling me, or even not even necessarily telling me, like, narrative-wise, but just feeling instinctually, no, absolutely not. Do not do it. It's going to be horrible. Don't do it. And so yeah. it's, at one point in school, I, I did a creative writing, and I wrote a story that was based on stuff I've dealt with, but it wasn't about me. But it, mm-hmm. it, it dealt with that kind of thing where the character had depression and anxiety and they were talking about this voice in their head. And I remember in the critique of the story in my creative writing workshop, someone was uh, like, do they have schizophrenia? And I was like, mm-hmm. no, it's, it's, it's not an actual voice. And there was multiple people in the class that like didn't understand. They were like, it seemed like they like heard voices. Like, and I, I just don't think someone with depression would, like, describe it like that, et cetera. And mm-hmm. for me, and then there was one person in the class who had also dealt with similar mental disorders, and they got it. I mean, they got mm-hmm. it in an instant. They didn't need to get it explained. And they were, like, like we were just kind of, like, I don't know how to explain this to you guys, but, like, when I say voice in my head, I don't mean I'm hearing some dude named Paul, like, telling me <laughs> to, like, burn the White House or whatever. <laughs> 
I yeah. know it's I know it's me. I know it's just an internal monologue, but yeah. it's still something I fight with myself over. Yeah. Well, I think even beyond having a disorder and understanding, I think almost just being self-aware and understanding that like there is a voice in all our head and it's our mind being, you know, just an awful saboteur. Like if you played the conversation in anyone's head, it would sound pretty nuts. It would sound like, I mean, it would be the most ridiculous. It's basically like someone kidnapped you and just like says the same thing to you repeatedly. I think if you like waking up to, to that happening is probably maybe you're forced to be aware of that even more with a disorder yeah. like you and that other person in the class found. Yeah, I think that's I, true. I can really, I when I was in college, I also wrote about um, just some body image issues. And I wrote like a story about somebody. And mm-hmm. man, those writer workshops, it, it's like awful because they tore my character apart. I mm-hmm. felt like they were tearing me apart. But um, But, you know, later in life, I think writing has really helped me kind of um, just talking about rewiring the brain and just finding peace and acceptance for those things that I went through. And I wonder mm-hmm. if, as an English major, I'm sure you still write. Um, yeah. Is that the same for you? Yeah, I would say so. It definitely, I'm in a place now where writing about it can really help me get through it. When, when I was particularly not doing well, sometimes it would make it worse because I would just write that voice and I would just end up putting it on paper, the catastrophic mm. thoughts. Yeah, But I'm now in a place where I can, it can help give me some empathy towards myself because I don't know if you guys uh, feel like this, but I, I think it turns out a lot of people do, but where essentially it could be a situation like taking a leave of absence from school, right? Because uh-huh. of a mental disorder. And if your friend did this, you wouldn't think anything of it. You'd think that's great. I'm really glad you're focusing on your mental health. I think that you really mm-hmm. need this. I think that's awesome. And there's yeah. absolutely no shame in that. Yeah. But if you did it, mm-hmm. it's awful. You're lazy. Yeah. It's stupid, etc. Yeah. And like, I will literally like have situations like this. Like I am looking into becoming a teacher And part of me thinks that's a waste of my super fancy degree, right? And I'll, like, tell my boyfriend this, and he'll be like, well, if another friend became a teacher, would you think that? And I'd be like, no. And he's like, so why is it a waste for you? And I'm like, well, it is. Mm. And there's just, I I know how stupid that sounds, but that's how my brain, like, it. I I can relate. I understand. (laughs) I do the same thing. I actually started um, writing. I know this sounds crazy, but since we're talking about crazy, um, I sometimes when I'm having like a negative spiral thought, I write a letter to myself as if Mm -hmm. I was a friend. Mm -hmm. And Uh man, that is like, I mean, it's like free therapy. (laughs) No, (laughs) yeah, it's great. It really works. Because yeah, we're so hard on ourselves. And I think we... um, And it doesn't sound crazy to us, by the way. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, but I don't think we're objective when we're thinking about ourselves. We're very subjective, obviously. So that helps. Yeah. Um, I could totally see that's an interesting method I hadn't heard of, but that's cool. Yeah, I've <laughs> I've I've done vague like similar things before. The other thing I do, which is again probably sounds really stupid, but it works for me, is I'll imagine what if I was a TV show character, 
Like what, like it'll help me, it'll help me stick on the right path for what I should do today. So I'll be Mm -hmm. like not feeling great and I'll be feeling lazy and I'll be like, I really want to just play video games all day and I really Mm want to avoid this work, right? Because that sounds like it's going to be a much easier fix. And I know logically it's going to end up much worse in the long run and I'm going to end up more anxious and it's going to be horrible. Uh But right now it feels like a good idea. But I'll think, okay, if I was a TV show or book character... What would I think as the reader? And as a reader, I'd be like, what are you doing? Go do your work. And so I'd be like, I should probably go do my work. <laughs> That's cool. Because in um, a way, speaking I, of, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, just in a way, I can be more empathetic towards fictional characters than I can be towards myself. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's sort of like getting outside of yourself, right? Like getting outside of when you're looking at yourself, there's so many distractions and you've got this whole narrative about yourself. But when you have an outsider's point of view, it completely changes and it's just more clear and more objective, it seems like. Yeah. I'm reading this book called The Anatomy of the Soul and it's a little bit religious. I don't know if you guys would enjoy it, but um, what he does do really well is he talks about how the brain is rewired when you share your story with somebody and you let yourself be known Uh and you see, um, you almost see yourself through their eyes and what that does to your brain and helping through trauma or understanding um, mm-hmm. just emotional issues that you're having. And it kind of goes back to that everything we're talking about of going to therapists or, you know, all of that has comes back. Your mm-hmm. brain is being changed by being shown empathy. Yeah. I mean, I know Spencer has mentioned that I'm very outspoken about my mental health, which I am probably to a fault. Like all of Facebook statuses about my depression and OCD. I don't I, – I've always – I've been like this since it all kind of started. I think that comes in part because in my family, someone has a mental disorder and other problems Mm -hmm. and no one talks about it. And -hmm. it drove me absolutely insane. And so from day one, I've been like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about it. And it has kind of had made people who I wasn't super good friends with, but like, you know, we're friendly, Mm -hmm. stay away from me. And I've been warned by my parents, by my sister, by friends, you really shouldn't post that. It might affect your job future. Just because I'm posting saying I had a really bad week with depression. Yeah. And my feeling has always been if a place isn't going to hire me because of that, I don't want to work for them. Now, that said, that's coming from a very privileged standpoint of – I come from a background where my parents could take me in, et cetera. Right. You know, it'll be okay. That's not true for everybody. Yeah. Um, But I think – but that's – I don't know. I've discovered that while there has been negative side effects to sharing that much, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. You'd be amazed by the number of people. Yeah. Like it it does hinder or maybe – and some like very uh, superficial relationships, but the ones – that people still are there for you, it enriches greatly, probably. And you would be amazed, I mean, honestly amazed, how many people have dealt with a mental disorder at some mm-hmm. point. It is mm-hmm. mo- It is the majority, in my experience. I, when yeah. you start it, telling it really someone about it... It does seem like it's such a huge thing beyond what anyone realizes. It gives them permission to tell you. And I can't tell you the number of times I've mentioned to someone, oh, yeah, I really deal with a lot of depression or anxiety. I can't tell you the number of times someone's gone oh, yeah, I dealt with a lot of depression or even, oh, yeah, I like, like I've had suicide ideation. Like people will get real with you real quick because they want to tell somebody and you've just given them an invitation, basically. That's powerful, I think. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty 
it's pretty fascinating how many people this affects mm-hmm. and nobody talks about it. It's like a snowball. Like I think one person doing it really does give other people permission to do it. And you're right. I do think it comes down to, you know, it's like an ideal, right, to be that authentic. Yeah. And it's something I certainly want to do. And I could do more too. Like I could be more open at, uh, you know, work or something, for example, where I might not readily talk about my past. Um, I think it's it's like everyone feels the weight and the risk of being authentic in that way. And it's like it it would have a lot more good than bad for a lot of people as it has with you and mm. give that permission. But it's it's just hard to, to really do. It's so hard. And, and, and like I said, I'm in a unique situation. I'm also in a situation where both my parents are doctors. They don't mind talking about like like even as hilarious as it is that in my family, this one mental disorder wasn't talked about. For most medical things, we don't care. We'll talk about, you know, some gross surgery at the dinner table. We don't care. Yeah, right. and no shame, exactly. So I'm from a family where that's not a shame thing. And I'm from the Bay Area, very liberal, very open, not a shame thing, you know? I'm not mm. from a really small community in the Midwest or the South where maybe this isn't something people talk about or it's considered bad, you know? So, I mean, even though I try very hard to stay open about it, that doesn't for a second mean that if you're not open about it, you're doing something wrong. Like, you just have to do what's right for you. Yeah. What would you totally. say to somebody who's kind of going through the midst of a really, um, just really challenging OCD right now? I would say there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It might be a very long tunnel, but it really does exist. I have been in your shoes, and I know it feels like this is never going to end, and like this is going to be the rest of your freaking life but it's not. And even if you feel like you're not making any progress, just by going to therapy or just by trying out meditation or whatever you're doing to deal with your issues, just by taking meds, whatever, you are helping yourself. And you might, and the biggest thing I would say is if you have a day where you screw it all up and you feel like you just took 50 steps back, don't punish yourself. Because that was a huge thing for me is I would be doing well and then I would have a day where, boom, I didn't do any of my work and I procrastinated and I just completely, like, acted as if I, as I had, you know, three months ago. And yeah. then I would feel so bad about it and I would feel so guilty about it and those feelings would make it continue. Yeah. you got to forgive yourself. You're going to have bad days. And you might have more bad days than you have good days. But that doesn't mean there isn't any progress. Right. It's like having, it's sort of like just one big message of having that perspective. And it's so hard, like in the midst of the bad day, knowing that that is a blip, even though it feels like a huge mar on your track record. It's so hard. And I know it's so hard. Um, I mean, if I was talking to me, you know, I mean like me from three years ago, I, would be like, yeah, okay, Katie. Like, I, like, wouldn't believe myself because, like, I was so convinced that, like, this would never go away and this would be my whole life, which, you know, just adds the depression kind of thing. But yeah, it is possible <laughs> to get better. It's just not mm-hmm. easy. And I think what you said is really important, too, with that acceptance that you almost have to have the attitude that, you know what, it's okay, even if it doesn't seem like you're getting better, even if it does seem like these problems are persisting and persisting, yeah. it's okay. And I think, ironically, that's maybe the only way that you can get better. 
yeah, it's unfortunately it's not an easy fix. It's not a clear uphill thing like, you know, strength training or something where, you know, if you just do it every day, you'll get a little right. more, a little more, a little more. Yeah. It's and not that I'm saying that that's easy, but there is sort of an uphill trajectory. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, one step up, eight steps backwards. That's how the recovery for this kind of stuff goes because you're literally changing how your brain works and the way to treatment for OCD at least is to go, this thing absolutely terrifies me. I'm going to do it a lot, which like, that's hard, Yeah, you know? And so there'd be days where I should have done exposure, exposure response. And I didn't because I did not want to have those feelings. Yeah, totally. Like, do you feel like uh, almost your instincts for survival and what you need are, at odds with your instincts for growth or not your instincts, your, what you need to do for growth. Like you might really feel like you're doing the wrong thing and what you need to do is the hard thing. Yeah. It's again, it comes back to that weird idea of your logical brain versus not where logically I can tell myself this will help. I know this will help. I've read the studies. I've talked to the experts And yet something in my mind is going, no, 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 no. Like subconsciously (laughs) almost. Like I'm not even necessarily listening to like rational thoughts of like, oh, yes, do this, do this. There's just a gut feeling and it's all about feeling and it's all about the chemicals your brain is making you feel where you're just like, Mm -hmm. no. So it comes, I think, down to that idea kind of of like, like if I like, it, it kind of feels like if you were like on the edge of a cliff and I took like a super strong curve and I was like, all right, jump. And you were like, absolutely not. And I was like, no, no, no. Like there's a like mattress at the bottom. You're totally fine. And uh-huh. you saw 50 other people do this and they were completely fine. Yeah. And you know, logically you're going to be completely fine. You can't get mm-hmm. rid of the feeling though, that like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm jumping off a cliff. Like you can't get rid of that. And so that's kind of how exposure response feels because every single time you're doing it, you're forcing yourself to do this horrible, you're in your mind, this horrible thing. And you're like, yeah, it'll, it'll be better. And it's like, (laughs) it, it is over a very long period of time. But humans aren't always wired to think right. long term. Immediate right. safety. We want to think about, you know, survival and yeah. propagating the species and ever all our biological imperatives. Yeah. Right. What um so obviously it's, this has been a long journey for you. I'm just yeah. curious if you have see any silver lining or any redeeming part of this story. Anything that you see that you've gained from this that's um just ended up being a good thing. Because I think a lot of times when people go through tragedy or or struggle, like there's mm-hmm. something beautiful that's born out of that. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of my friendships and my relationship and stuff, it made it very, very – like it, it helped solidify for me who – like how great certain friends were and how great my boyfriend is that they put up with all this basically. Mm-hmm. And I mean he would hate it if I said he had to put up with me. But like to some extent, like – to some extent, not everyone has a girlfriend when they're 19 who sits on the floor of her room in the fetal position sobbing because she can't fit all her clothing into a suitcase. Like, that's not normal. But that's, and we, at that point, we had only been dating like a month. 
but that's what he dealt with and Mm -hmm. was fine with. So in some ways I know anything that comes at us, we can handle because, and that's true of my friendships too. I've done a lot of bad things to friends because of this and they've all continued to be my friend for some reason. And the other thing I would say is that, um, I mean, this is also just naturally how I've always been. I like to say I have a superpower, which is extreme empathy. Hmm. And it is a superpower in all senses in that it is, it can be used for good. Like it helps me a lot working with kids. I can put myself in their shoes, no problem. It helps me with friends. It helps me all the time. And then there's a downside, you know, like, super strength would be like, oh no, you don't know your own strength. Like you might accidentally like crush a car. Um, The downside of this is it can be very debilitating. I can't watch the news because I get so invested in the stories that I, it literally can send me into a depressive spiral. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I have to be, if, if someone in the room is upset I feel upset. So, which is hilarious to my boyfriend because he'll come home and he's tired and I'll be like, and he'll, so he'll be like a little grumpy after one is after a full day of work. And then I immediately am like, oh no. And I'll get grumpy. And then he'll be like, well, what, what? And he'll get grumpy and I'll get grumpy. Like we have these weird, (laughs) now the opposite happens where if he's happy, I'm happy kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Uh But it can. Symbiotic. Yeah. But I, I feed so much off of other people's emotions I'm so super tuned to them and that can be a really awesome thing sometimes I think it helps me with my writing I'm really yeah. good at putting myself in other people's shoes and I think sometimes it sucks because things can really really affect me that yeah mm-hmm. you know other people it's like oh that's sad but they don't yeah. right. you know end up missing work because of it yeah somebody well I think another silver lining and real strength of yours Katie being totally sincere is you're very self-aware I think like what you've had to go through and the struggle you've had to go through has made you look at yourself and your mind and uh, sort of what goes on and uh, the the challenge of everyday life um, that a lot of people can relate to in a powerful way and I think you know I didn't necessarily know this was going to turn into touting exposure as much as it has and you know talking about (laughs) sorry no it's good because I was gonna say I think a lot of people are gonna be helped by that I think a lot of people like you have a lot of wisdom to share at a really young age um that I think is a huge value add it's been really good well thank you I I do think I probably have gained quite a bit of self-awareness because a big part of I think for anyone with a mental disorder uh getting learning to live with it is recognizing almost what's you and what's the disorder mm-hmm. and that's like kind of in itself like a controversial topic because at the same time like it is you but it isn't it yeah um yeah. but I just mean like kind of being able to pick a part in your head okay this is the animal part that's making me freak out for no reason this is the part that's being logical this is the part that's being judgy you know it it's and trying to be able to pick out those parts so that you can know what you should listen to versus not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is like an authentic self, I think, versus something you've constructed or something that has happened to you um, that I, I do think like they can be looked at. You know, it is kind of separate, but you're right. It is a paradox too. Yeah. 
because of course having been through all this that's really affected who I am so it's it's it means something I think you know I think a lot of people with mental disorders think about where it's is am I just a person with a disorder or is that disorder like a part of me particularly mm-hmm. if you're like me and my my depression anxiety well my anxiety is set off by certain things but in general my depression anxiety is not caused by a specific event like Laura I know you had like a specific event happen mm-hmm. which admittedly now I think what you go through is probably somewhat chronic since it changed your brain but mm-hmm. for me it's just kind of how I was born and so when you live in a situation where you know this isn't going away. I mean, I've gotten to the point, I've gotten to a much healthier place, but it's not going Mm -hmm. away. It's not gone and it's not going away. And I don't think I'm going to wake up one day and going to go, all right, no more OCD, no more depression, done. And in some ways that's like really, really upsetting, you know, because you're like, oh God, I'll never be normal. But in some ways (laughs) it's like, you just learn to live with it. Just like someone who had chronic pain would or something like Mm -hmm. that you know you just that's those that's what you've been given (laughs) and I think the only way it ever would you know quote unquote go away not that it ever could completely go away in anyone but I think the only way really to heal is to accept that that could happen it could just always be a part of your life and that's all right yeah which I'm I'm working on getting there I yeah for a while there was convinced there was things I couldn't do because of it. You know, I thought, Oh, I can't do that job. I'll fail at it. Or I can't go to to that. I can't go to grad school. Look at what happened when I went to undergrad Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get to, I think I'm at a point where I'm trying to be like, okay, you can do it just because you failed once. Doesn't mean you're going to fail again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's not as if you failed. I remember (laughs) thinking, um, like, I remember after college, I was I, I was under the impression, you know, and not to take, I know you struggled so much, but I was under the impression like something disastrous really happened, but you finished up having done well. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's, it's because of, Laura, I think you mentioned this in one of the podcast episodes, you were kind of super girl. You did all the things. You got all the good grades, you did all the stuff, and that was me. I wasn't I wasn't yeah. doing sports, but I was doing theater. Mm-hmm. And I was stage managing all the shows, and I was doing 50 million extracurriculars, and I yeah. was getting all A's, mm-hmm. and I was the person people went, how does she do it? Mm-hmm. And you're so impressive. And I liked that. And, of course, yeah. secretly I was crying myself to sleep every night, but, hey, I looked like I had shit together. <laughs> and so... Which is what matters, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so I've had a, one of my big struggles has been trying to not compare myself to past Katie, to Katie before the OCD really got bad, who the one who was on track for a Fulbright scholarship, who was doing 50 million, you know, was going to direct show, who was one of the star employees in neighborhood schools program kind of thing. And I became someone that had to drop out of every extracurricular didn't do well in my classes, barely graduated. I've failed at quite a few jobs because of the mental stuff. And I have to, I try very hard to keep in mind that I'm, I'm not actually worse than I was. Like in some ways mm-hmm. I'm better because mm-hmm. I'm now in a place where I'm able to have fun and not feel like I'm doing something wrong, which is lovely. And I feel like I have better priorities. I'm no longer doing things just because I worry about what other people think 
and because yeah. I'm constantly just doing succeeding because of the fear, fear of failure. But it, at the same time, it's like what would have, what could have been, kind of thing, you know? Yeah, it's, I suppose, it's yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, you can still get sucked into that old idea of what success is, even after you found like it sounds like honestly a more genuine success in life. Yeah, I'm actually, I, I'm in a really good place right now. And I recently we had UChicago Alumni Weekend and uh, some of uh, Alec and Spencer's friends who I know um, are making lots of money. They have very <laughs> fancy jobs. They're kind of miserable. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm making nothing. I'm making minimum wage. Mm-hmm. But... I go to bed happy, like which is yeah. great because I used to think that was never going to happen for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely something I think on many of our minds. Um, and I, I can't wait to get this episode out there. Thank you a ton, Katie. I actually think this is going to be helpful for so many people. Yeah, so. agreed. And Katie, I hope you continue to be a teacher because kids need people like you Thanks. to be on schools. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping I don't mess it up. Basically, <laughs> you won't. welcome. Welcome to the anxiety. It's not gone. Well, you definitely. Yeah, this this was great. Thanks, Katie. Thank you guys for having me. As always, to stay in touch with us by email and hear about the podcast behind the scenes, you can visit us on redeemingdisorder.com. And special thanks to Hetty, who donated our theme music from her song Shipwrecking Me from her latest album. Be sure to check it out at hettymusic.com. Join us next week, and until then, we hope you feel empowered to start a conversation of your own. Mm